Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast from Grace Anglican Church of Grove City, Pennsylvania. Our goal in every sermon is to proclaim the bold truth of the Word of God, especially the undiluted grace of Jesus Christ. If you want to learn more about our church, check out our website at graceanglicanonline.com. I want to speak this morning about the theme of desecration. Desecration is when you defile something that is set aside to be special or sacred. And there's a lot of desecration happening in the 37th chapter of Genesis. And we normally associate that word with a variety of acts or contexts. Some people uh, use that word whenever the American flag is burned. That's a desecration of something that's important. I remember the first funeral that I ever attended was for my grandfather who died of asbestos-related cancer. And the minister uh, used the word, and I didn't know what it meant, so I had to ask afterward, but he said that his lungs, my grandfather's lungs, had been desecrated uh, by asbestos. And I I remember a terrible act of desecration that occurred in a cathedral during World War II. It was at Coventry Cathedral in England, and in 1940, during the Blitz, the Nazis bombed the cathedral and utterly destroyed it desecrating this holy site and deliberately doing so. Well, in Genesis chapter 37, in this second section of the Joseph story, we glimpse a horrific desecration, a desecration that affects a family, that affects a dream, and that affects a robe. And so I want to talk about this desecration. And the reason that I'm getting all heavy today, not only because we have a heavy text, is because I think the truth of our theology or a belief system is always measured by our experience of the pit, that we need a theology that can keep us and sustain us, not just on the good days or on those days that we feel neither good nor bad, but on those days that we feel terrible. You need a song to sing in the dark. You need a theology and a belief system to sustain you whenever you have nothing else going. And so uh, let me speak about the desecration that is occurring in this passage. First, the desecration of family. You know, it's interesting to me that God's salvific plan to redeem the world that begins in Genesis 12 doesn't begin with him authoring a sacred book with gilded letters. It doesn't involve him giving the world a philosopher who will figure out, you know, the right epistemology or the right worldview or anything like that. Uh, or giving the world a therapist who will sit us down in a reclining chair and figure out all our issues and our Oedipal complexes. Instead, what he does is he gives the world a family, a family, in this case, the family of Abraham. And he promises Abraham in Genesis 12 and then later in Genesis 15 that through Abraham and his seed, his offspring, his family, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And so God's way of redeeming humankind isn't to bring an apocalypse or a therapist or an author, but to bring a family. But what's fascinating to me is how unblessed Abraham's family seems to be, at least in their behavior. You would think that if this family were chosen and set aside for great things, that they would model great behavior. And they don't. Uh, They're not that different from your family. Uh, 
Abraham's family is not immune to the deformities of life. Quite the contrary. We see in this passage that there is a growing desecratory impulse within them all. And uh, we see it beginning internally. And this was mentioned right before our passage today began in verse 11. Again, not included in our reading. It says that Joseph's brothers, when they heard about his two dreams, were jealous of him. It's interesting. Were jealous of him. Jealous of the dreamer. Notice it wasn't that they believed that Joseph was simply arrogant And it wasn't just that the brothers wanted justice or a fair family or an equal playing field so that everybody gets a bit of the inheritance or everybody gets a bit of the glory. No, no, no. It says that they were jealous of him. That is, they wanted to be the tallest wheat sheaf. They wanted to be superior to the moon, the sun, and the stars. And they were resentful that this younger brother of the favored wife, Rachel, gets all the glory while they get all the work. He gets to don the royal robe while they are out sweating in the field. They're resentful and jealous because of what their brother has and what their brother sees in his visions. And this envy, this jealousy, grows within them and starts to inform their plans. So it just doesn't stay a dark dream of the heart. Instead, it spreads to the hands. And in verses 18 through 28, the bulk of our passage, they conspire toward murder. Now, I want you to notice they're conspiring here against their own blood, against a brother. So it wasn't like they were done wrong by some attorney or some telemarketer who sold them a bill of goods, somebody that they didn't know very well but could still blame for some egregious crime. In fact, Joseph committed no crime and was their blood brother, and they betray him. Now, that, uh, that's a theme that goes all the way back to the first brothers of Scripture, of Cain and Abel, the impulse of Cain, that is, uh, the, the man who was willing Uh, to look at his younger brother, Abel, and wish to destroy his ideal from the face of the earth to spite God for not accepting his own offering. That impulse is still present in this elect family. The fratricidal impulse of, of murder is still there. You may remember after Cain kills Abel and God uh, semi-confronts him, uh, Cain pushes back against God and asks, what, am I my brother's keeper? Now, the overwhelming answer implied by Genesis is, yes, you are. You are your brother's keeper. You are the one who is to protect your brother, your sister, within a fallen and difficult context. And here, we see these brothers not being a keeper or a protector, but instead plotting murder. To add insult to injury, not only do they conspire toward murder, they then decide to cover it up. The person who's chiefly afflicted by this cover-up is the poor father. Within this ancient culture, the uh, honor of one's parents was especially paramount. It ought to be as well today, but it isn't to the same degree. Uh, And they lie to their father, and they tell him, or he deduces, that fierce animals, that's the language that's repeated in the text, fierce animals have torn your son apart. 
And what's, of course, sad and to some degree ironically true is that did occur. Fierce animals in the form of brothers did tear a life apart uh, and have broken a father's heart. And so we see envy that creates conspiracy to murder and then creates a cover-up. And I want you just to simply notice that desecration never begins in action. Desecration always begins in the hidden chambers of the heart. And Jesus taught this too. Whenever the Pharisees were debating him about where true defilement comes from, Jesus said it's not about what happens in the external world. That's bad enough. But it always starts within you. I'm reminded of something that Margaret Thatcher uh, once said. Uh, She said, watch your thoughts because they will become actions. Watch your actions for they will become your habits. Watch your habits for they will forge your character and watch your character for it will make your destiny. But it always begins on the inside, the place that nobody sees. And that's how this family is brought to ruin because of jealousy and envy. And so uh, be careful. You know, when I was, I once saw this really um, flaky shrink and I believe in psychotherapy, very, very seriously believe in it. But I was seeing this very flaky shrink and I was telling them about how I was feeling. Very, I was very angry with somebody in my life that had done me wrong and, and uh, I wanted to you know, ruin this person. And they said, well, but Ethan, have you ruined them? Have you sought out in any way to harm them? Have you lied about them publicly or seared their reputation in any way? Have you punched them in the face repeatedly or hit them with a hammer? And then they wanted me to laugh. And I said, well, no. And they said, so it doesn't matter. As long as you don't do anything, it doesn't matter how you feel. That's not true. Uh, the, the sin, the, the decay, the, the desecration always begins within. And so just watch what you're feeling on the inside. Watch your heart because the, the, the care of God drills all the way down to the inner chamber of the heart. Not just as an accusing voice from God saying you shouldn't feel that way, but the care of God for your well-being starts there. And so that's how this family is desecrated. But it, it, it's worse than that. There's also a desecration of a dream. A desecration of a dream. This is verse 19. It's a key verse. The brothers said to one another, here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him and we will see what will become of his dreams. That's the key part. We will see what will become of his dreams. In other words, the brothers wanted to kill more than a man. They did want to kill Joseph or at least get rid of him, excise him from the family, send him away where he'll be harmless. But they certainly wanted to kill his dream. They wanted to kill his vision. They wanted to kill his position, his potential, his future. Get rid of that. Why did they want to kill that? Because in Joseph's dream, they, all of the brothers, became subservient. And they can't live in a world in which the younger, impish, proud, coat-wearing brother gets to be the little family Don, gets to be the little emperor. They can't live in that world. And so they wish to kill his dream. The difficult question that Joseph's brothers never asked, might Joseph be right? Might it be true? Maybe he is the tallest sheep. Maybe sun and moon and stars will bow down. Maybe, this is a 
deeper question, maybe it would be better for us if we did. That is, maybe his promotion, even if it's misunderstood or even if it was presented in a rather haughty way, maybe his promotion would be good for our whole nation and our future. They didn't dare ask that question because it would necessarily mean their subservience. And I do want to say for us, this is the key question of theology and it's the key question of life. Is it true? Not is the presentation appealing or palatable, but is the content true? I was uh, looking at Facebook the other day because I like schadenfreude and punishment. Um, and, uh, and people post a lot of crazy things because people in our current moment are hyper-reactive and they think that they can change the world or the course of discourse by posting something passive-aggressive. And somebody posted this, and it was, it was in um, purple, and very nice flowers uh, in the border all around it. And it was a quote that says, kindness is the only virtue. That's pathological. That's ridiculous. That's insane. That's not true. Kindness is not the only virtue. If you believe that, you could never read the Old Testament prophets because the Old Testament prophets were rarely kind or palatable. That doesn't make them liars, though. They were honest. They were trying to sober a sleepwalking nation. Uh, the brothers could not handle the content of this dream because it would by necessity mean that they would have to grapple with the difficult truth of their own subservience. But what don't we want to hear? because it's not palatable, it doesn't assuage us. Um, because here's the thing with scripture and with the Christ at the center of the scripture. They will, at times, many times, bring us great comfort. But at other times, in order to bring us a fuller comfort, they must first distress us. And are we willing to give ear to those voices that actually bring temporary distress to our lives? Well, it's a needful question, I think, for our moment, because kindness is not the only virtue. It is one of many virtues, but it needs to be weighed against the truth. So Joseph's dream was lofty, right? He was the tallest sheaf of wheat. He was the one in front of whom the sun, the moon, the stars bowed down. But they brought this dreamer low. They threw him into a pit. What's a pit? It's an open grave with no water, so he'll wither away there. Uh, He'll experience his own inner drought and starve in this open grave. Now, the pit, uh, you may remember from the reading, was a mediated idea, mediated through Reuben. Reuben, in this family, was the eldest brother who held responsibility, in some ways was a local parentis, right? So he was a local parent holding responsibility over the brothers, and he didn't want red hands for himself or his uh, brothers. And so he said, let's just throw him into a pit, which doesn't seem like a great mercy because it's not a great mercy, but it's better than a blade. So he's in the pit. But then Judah... Uh, a very fancy brother with a great future, said, well, that's still a little, a little bit barbaric. How about we get some money out of this? Like, so I think this scene is fascinating. So Joseph, the dreamer, uh, is in the pit. They're right next to him eating lunch. They're eating RV sandwiches while their brother is right next door. And, and Judah has this idea. He's like, you know what? Let's not let him stay there. Let's send him away to a different country and dehumanize him by making him a slave. And they all said, well, let's get some money out of this. And so they got some silver and sold him to the uh, Ishmaelites, and they brought him to Egypt. Um, now, that's a precursor to Israel's future, slavery in Egypt, 400 years. 
And so Joseph becomes in some way symbolic of that. So the brothers conspire to kill a dream by excising their brother and therefore circumventing their future lowly state before him. So they desecrate the dream. And lastly, we see the desecration of clothing, of robes. Now, robes in the ancient world were markers of dignity. That was especially true uh, in Joseph's case, of course, because he had the coat of many colors or long sleeves or regal gown, depending on how you are translating it. Well, what's fascinating in this passage is we see three people getting their clothes ripped up, not just one. The first person is Reuben. This is verse 29. When Reuben returned to their pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes and returned to his brothers and said, the boy is gone and I, where shall I go? So Reuben is tearing his clothes first. Why is he tearing his clothes? Out of fear because he's the eldest. He was saddled with responsibility and it seems like he was responsible for keeping the kid in the pit and the kid is gone. And so he's in trouble. He's in trouble. He's actually in legal trouble with his father. So he's upset, and he has in all ways failed to be his brother's keeper. And then we see Joseph's royal robe, the robe of many colors, uh, destroyed. This is verse 31. Then they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in the blood. And they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father. Now, notice this robe was at one point symbolic of parental favor, but it now represents conspiracy and deceit. And more than that, there's a slight substitutionary image in this passage because Joseph is not killed. The goat is killed and the blood is placed on the robe. Uh, something similar happens in the early stories of the patriarchs whenever Abraham is called by God in a very strange way to sacrifice his own son Isaac he draws very near to doing so takes out his knife to sacrifice his boy and then he sees due to an angelic announcement a ram caught in a thicket by the horns and kills the ram instead of his son that motif is now repeated in this story in which uh, there is blood shed to cover the garment of somebody else and then after that, the father tears his robe. This is uh, Jacob, also called Israel, in verse 33. And he identified it and said, it is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. Then jo Jacob tore his garments. So this patriarch is tearing his garments out of grief, out of grief for his son. And so we have Reuben tearing his clothes uh, out of fear, Joseph having his royal robe torn apart and the father tearing his robe out of grief. What does this symbolize? This garment shredding is that this family, this sacred elect chosen visionary family is seemingly destroyed. It represents everything being torn apart without recovery. And so if we stopped our passage here, we would have something like Hamlet. This is a Shakespearean tragedy with no light in it. The text ends in dishonor and desecration. And here is my question that I want to conclude with, and it relates to this story, but also our own pits into which we have fallen numerous times in our lives. Where is God? Where is God? Because God is not yet mentioned in this story, not once. Genesis 37 seems, to some degree, atheistic in the sense that there is no intervention of God, no prayers to God, no mention of God, even the dreams don't involve God. So where is God? We might conclude, and maybe Joseph concluded, we can't see inside his head, that God is either absent 
or worse, present but unconcerned, because everything in this story is moving from bad to worse, and you would think that if God were involved, it would at least be getting a little bit better and healthier. But here's what I am starting to see in my own life, and maybe you can share in this experience, is that I find, for me, that I cannot see the full horizon of providence from the bottom of a pit. All I can see is a speck of light above me. And if I'm in a pit, the only thing I can assume about reality is that it is hopeless, forsaken, and I ought to be fearful. While we can't see the hands of God in this story at this point, Joseph, when he's out of this pit and then out of another pit that he falls into, we'll get into that later, is able to look back on his life and conclude this to his uh, onlooking brothers. You meant what you did for evil, but God meant it for good. In other words, when he was out of the pit, after the catastrophe, he could look back and say, oh no, when I was in the pit, God was in the pit right there with me. I was never forsaken. I was never alone. Uh, God was right there the whole time. The providential hand of God is often detected in the rearview mirror. When we look back, we start to see the patterns. Uh, and we certainly know as New Covenant Christians that God is not absent in the midst of desecration. How do we know that? Because Christianity centers upon desecration. Christianity is all about the desecration, not just a desecration of a heroic but flawed Old Testament figure, but a desecration of God's key priest and king and prophet, someone who had a lot in common with Joseph. After all, Jesus was sold for silver. Jesus had conspirators. Jesus was betrayed by his comrades. Jesus was stripped of his clothes. Jesus was tossed in a shale-like pit to die. In Christ, God himself, to quote Isaiah, was smitten, stricken, and afflicted. But unlike Joseph, this desecrated Jesus didn't suffer for his own pride, but he suffered for ours, our arrogance, our rebellion against our maker. And so my question for you today is to, consider, is to think about your own pit and to ask you about it. What is it? What have you fallen into? And then to tell you that you're not alone there. And so first, what is the pit? What is the thing that has sullied and you believe disqualified you, marred you permanently, made you an untouchable, desecrated you? Is it the brutal words that you spoke to a spouse after you were uh, a little bit tipsy, let's say, and those words still rattle around in your head? Maybe it's the fact that you flunked out of your first year of college and lost your scholarship and now your parents regard you with mild derision and your friends think you're a moron. Or maybe it's a cheap dalliance that you had in the backseat of a bus uh, or a one-night stand that you regret. Or maybe it's an eating disorder that makes you feel alone and ashamed. Or maybe it's a divorce which shows to the whole world that you just couldn't manage to make a most sacred thing work. Or maybe you're addicted to painkillers. You need them or it feels like you'll die without them. Or maybe it's raging out at your children, smacking their faces in uncontrollable anger. Or maybe it's that you lied about your academic credentials in, it, in order to get a job that you're in truth not qualified for. But I'm wondering about you. What's tainted you? What's spoiled you? What's ruined you? And, and how do you escape the oubliette of that open grave? 
Well, what's the first step in becoming free? I think it's simply this, to know that however low you are, God has stooped lower. God has stooped lower into deeper pits than yours, and he is unashamed of you. Unashamed of you. How do we know? Because in Christ, God, the loftiest and highest of realities, sits in the desecratory pits with us. Sits there with us. He is the one who strolls in the valley of the shadow of death. He is the one about whom the psalmist says, if I make my bed in hell, you're still there. The one we cannot escape. God walks the dark hills of betrayal. God sits in the waterless pits. God stands in the bombed out cathedral. A little side note about Coventry Cathedral. After the bombing, and after the Nazis had obliterated it, the dean of the cathedral took two broken pieces of charred wood from the ceiling that had fallen down, splintered, cracked, destroyed. And he nailed them together in the form of a cross and then painted with bold black letters these words on the horizontal beam, Father, forgive. Not Father, forgive them, not Father, forgive us, just Father, forgive, because everybody needs it. And that message it suggests that even here, even in the burned out place, even in the place of great desecration, God stands unobliterated, unharmed, because his mercy endures forever. And nothing can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, not even you. So in the long and tragic and beautiful story of your life, you will look back at one point and see all of the pits that you fell into, those times that you felt alone, that God was absent or even non-existent. But those were, in fact, as you look back, the very times when he was preciously present, whether you could see it or not. And you, like Joseph, will also see a full recovery, far brighter and far better than even your grandest dreams. Amen. Free at last, they took your